Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The British author Roald Dahl wrote James and the Giant Peach based on bedtime stories he told his daughters. Dahl followed it with 15 more children's books, some of which repeatedly appear on lists of the most popular kid stories ever written. James and the Giant Peach was adapted as a musical that became a hit, and it's on stage now at Woodstock Arts. Later this hour, we'll hear about the new production and why this story of a young boy from an abusive home who finds happiness with a chosen family continues to resonate with children. First, in the late 18th and early 19th century, the people of the nation we know as Haiti, most of whom were recently enslaved, overthrew a world power and helped prevent world domination by Napoleon. Women were essential to winning the Haitian Revolution, and their stories are at the heart of Sister Mother Warrior, a new novel by Vanessa Riley. The author joins me now via Zoom. Vanessa Riley, welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Oh, this book is outstanding enough as a literary achievement, yet it also serves as an important history lesson. The story should be included as part of our collective American history. For now, would you give us some background, the basic historic facts of the Haitian Revolution? Yes, so the Haitian Revolution was a very long slog. Throughout the 1700s, rebellions were breaking out on the colony known as Saint-Domingue. First, it was Hispaniola, then Saint-Domingue, when the French took over most of the, the island. Saint-Domingue was the Pearl of the Antilles. It was the richest colony. It's why it was so highly sought after. But it was also the most treacherous colony 
most slave transports from Africa come to Saint Domingue because the mortality rate, being in the fields with the bugs and the the yellow fever and and all of the different climate challenges on a top of the oppressive conditions sets up a situation where there's constant need to have enslaved labor. So they're constantly shipping in people from Africa into Santa Domingue to work the fields. And there's climates of discontent because people yearn for freedom. Even as there is religious turmoil between the Jesuits and the Capuchins, there's all levels of turmoils in the classes because the fact that you have Europeans coming into the West Indies, people are people, there are many types of relationships that are happening. So you have a, a tier of classes, you have Blancs, which are, are Caucasian Europeans, which are French or British or Spanish. And then you have the enslaved Africans. And then you have this somewhat free class of the coloreds, the um, mixing of the black and the white. Everyone has different levels of freedom or different aspirations for freedom. And it is a consuming pile of conflicts. But by the time you get to about around 1791, it's when it's boiling over. And that's when you get the famous names that we all know, Toussaint Lavatour and Jean-Jacques Desolives. And they are the ones that, you know, strive together to push for freedom. But what you miss in that, uh, in this conflict is the women. And there are many rebellions happening all across the West Indies. This one is successful. And I firmly believe it is because of the women at the heart of it. Yes, you are elevating the stories of women whose roles were vital, essential to the success of the revolution. Please introduce us to the main characters. Yes. So let's start with Abadoya Toya. Everyone a few years ago went and saw this movie called Black Panther. And we were all running around going Wakanda forever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the Dory Mayage was actually uh, modeled after the Minos. The Minos were warrior women that protected the king, the Dahomey king in Africa. And so I was fascinated about this and, and I, I wanted to know more because when I, you know, there's this story craft for the movies. I wanted to know this history because this is something I've never been told. And I stumbled upon this woman, Abadora, and I follow her path and I find out that she was one of the leaders of the Dahomey women, one who's training women for battle. She's very successful, but somehow she gets enslaved. She ends up in Santa Domingue. There, she's able to use some of the talents her mother taught her from being an herbalist. And because the, once again, that death rate I was talking about is so high. If you could figure out how to keep the enslaved healthier, live longer, you got special privileges. You were almost revered on these habitations, which we call plantations. And this is Abadora, but she uses her role to be subversive, and she's training up these children to be warriors because she believes that freedom is going to come one day. So she's chaining these children. And one of the young boys that she trains is a man named Jean-Jacques. And she teaches him battle movement and troop movement and, and under the stars, how to position your, your, your warriors. And this young man grows up to be Jean-Jacques Desalines, who is the man who, after Toussaint Levateur is betrayed by the French, He's the one that leads the forces. And when modern day look 
back at his troop movements, he's one of the geniuses of battle warfare. He gets all of that from Abadoya. And Abadoya in her 60s is still on the battlefield leading troops to advance you know, the, the cause of freedom. So she is a, a dynamic woman. Her story needs needed to be told. Oh, yes. I mean, dare I say badass before we yes! knew what badass <laughs> was. This warrior, I, oh, such pride and dignity and strength. And, and you imbue her story and later that of Marie-Claire Bonheur with such wisdom and feminism. You know, I don't know why we think, okay, Gloria Steinem brought Ms. into being in the 1970s and feminism was born. Like it didn't occur to women during these earlier centuries that their roles weren't fully appreciated. It, it, it always amazes me because people are the same. We all want freedom. We all want autonomy over our person. And to think that that's just an advent of the late 1800s or the 1920s, et cetera, et cetera, here in America is, is such a fallacy. We've always wanted to make our own way. Women have always sought that. It's just, you know, sometimes fiction puts women in, in a little pretty box with little pretty bows and says that, you know, they didn't misbehave. I believe misbehave women change history or well, women who break out of that mold of being delicate and need to be revered on a shelf. The ones who jump off the shelf and, and go into action, they make history. Well, Toya's story is just amazing. And she was, I don't want to say a, a reluctant warrior, but she didn't have much choice. She was captured initially and and made to become a warrior, although in modern parlance, I guess you'd say she drank the Kool-Aid. Um, <laughs> her story reveals aspects of African life that implicate her ruler's responsibility for his role in the slave trade. How does she justify or rationalize serving King Tegbesu? When I began to do the research on the Minos, these women warriors, I looked into their training. And at some levels, it's, it's almost brainwashing. They are taught, you know, how to move troops. They're taught warfare, but they are conditioned almost to feel no more pain. Men, for, uh, I read accounts of Spanish and British, they were fearful of these women. They thought they were witches and, and almost immortal because they felt no pain in battle. So these women are, are chosen young and they are conditioned that the king is holy, that the king knows whatever he's telling you to do is right and therefore you must do it and you must not question. And so that's what I wanted to show in, in the book. That's because she's uh, one of these women and the choices are you are either accepted as a potential bride of the king as a first wife or as a, a second wife, which would be a, a Minos warrior, or you're going to walk that red road to Wida. There's no other choice. And so she is feeling alone. She's vulnerable. And so she, she goes all in because she, she begins to feel that sisterhood because 
that's the nature of the training. It's, it's very, it's, it's very effective. If you are young and you're impressionable and you're already hurting because you're displaced, it's very easy to fall into that. I mean, we see that in, in society now, how people fall into cliques and, and they somewhat become brainwashed. Mm-hmm. But there's a point where she wakes up and she realizes we are complicit. We are complicit in enslavement. We, this is what we've done to people following the orders of the king. And there's a point where you've got to realize you cannot blame the king for, you know, like always saying, I did it because of my duty. There's a point where you have to realize it is your duty as a human being to realize right is right and wrong is wrong. And for her, that's a moment where she has to reconcile that. And then she almost feels like she's, you know, paying penance. Part of her enslavement is penance for all of the wrongs that she did in in the name of the king. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with the author Vanessa Riley. We're discussing her new novel, Sister Mother Warrior. The other protagonist is Marie Claire. Tell us about her. To balance such a dynamic woman with such power, I wanted to show soft power. And when I I found Mary Claire's story, it was the perfect because they both have connections to Jean-Jacques Deslines. So Mary Claire Bonaire, from an early age, from the there's a, a massive earthquake that hits her village. She and her mother are out there trying to feed the hungry. And she doesn't care who this is, whether it's black, white, foreigners, she doesn't care. She wants to feed them. And this is a trait that continues through her education and whatnot. But this woman, there is a the Battle of Jacmel. It's 1800s, literally 1800s. She's in all white. She has followers behind her who she's convinced that this is what women should do. Women should go and feed the hungry. They're all in white. They're on mules. Now, first of all, you never wear white on a mule, but that's just (laughs) my perspective. (laughs) But she is fearless and she goes with these women on a mule train into the middle of the heart of the battle and she expects them to stop fighting for her. Now they do. And she's able to feed the people because there was so much suffering. When you do these blockades, the city of Jacmel was blockaded. All this active fighting is happening. The people are starving. They had resorted to actually killing the horses and feeding. And when you get to that level, when the horse is your mode of only mode of transport, it's it's pulling the plows in the fields, it's all these different things. You that's a level of desperation. So she knew the hurt that was there and she risked her life. And she's successful. I firmly believe she is the first battlefield nurse, yes. predating Mary Seacole, predating Florence Nightingale. And such a near beatific, beatific figure. I mean, she's deeply religious and sees this as humanity. This, this is her calling. She doesn't care if it's the enemy's civilians who are starving. They are humans who are starving. And it's such a fascinating contrast with her husband, who had to be a warrior, who is heroic, and her sister-mother warrior, Toya. To me, it's it's so fascinating. You have, on both sides of Jean-Jacques Deslines, Mary Claire marries Jean-Jacques Deslines, and you have power and peace on both sides of her, both sides of, of Jean-Jacques. 
I think that's a fascinating contrast. Oh, absolutely. And we'll get to the relationship of Marie Claire and Jean Jacques in just a moment, but I was hoping, would you first read the four line verse that appears below the title of Part One, The Prophecy? One day, gods from heaven came down. The earth shook, dancing from the sound. All knew they arrived to lose the bound, and this hope made the world feel new. How does this poetry act as a structural device for the novel? I cover over 50 years in this novel because I firmly believe the war most people focus on 1791, the war actually started with women poisoning the slave drivers, the slave masters, because of the horrid conditions that they were under. But because it was women rebelling, no one wants to focus on that. They want to talk about when the men and the warriors and the, the, the troops movement. But if you look throughout the history, it is women moving forward, trying to protest in the ways and means that they had access to, which are through the roots and the plants. And because they're doing the cooking and, and the houseware, it's very easy for them to infiltrate and to, to start this portion of almost guerrilla warfare. For me, this poem is prophetic and it helps set the tone of this is coming, freedom is coming, but there are going to be costs. There's a reason for hope, but it's going to cost us something to get to that hope. You touched upon the true beginning of the revolution and the women who were poisoning the masters and their families. Reading about the torture inflicted on enslaved people in Haiti was shocking beyond other horrific acts of violence and brutality that have been documented. Was this treatment even more sadistic than other known punishment on American plantations? I don't know how to answer that. I haven't studied in depth in the American system. From what we learn in school, this is much more brutal. Yes. But many stories aren't told, so I can't say definitively. But I do know from in the West Indies, the treatment in Santa Domingue was worse than the other colonies. And this was this a French thing, a Spanish thing? It's a Santa Domingue thing, I think, <laughs> because, you know, there had been so much poisonings. There had been so much uprising. There was almost the need, if we can break their spirit and show them, if you act in a way that we do not like, this is your punishment. So the punishment was harsher than other places I've seen in the West Indies. And I think it was this fallacy that if I, this will break them. If we do this, they understand what can happen, then the enslaved will obey and we won't have these problems because there, there are rebellions, uprisings happening in Jamaica, in Demerara. It's ubiquitous throughout the West Indies. People want freedom and they will find a way to do it. And the fallacy was it just made the enslaved more hungry for freedom and more retributive. 
because the level of pain they had inflicted this, you know, it goes in America, we know about the separation of families. We, we've seen, you know, pickling and, and these other things that Ugh. are horrible, but Santa Domingue is kind of horrible plus. Yeah. In fact, I, I wondered how you were able to stomach some of the research on this. It's gut-wrenching. And, you know, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a crier, but when I was watching High on the Hog oh. and the host walks down that red clay road, I had just written that, that part and I started crying. There's so much in the history we don't know. And when you find it, it's almost like something in your soul says, yes, you survived this. Your people are strong people. You come from strong genes. But yes, there was suffering to get here. It cost us something to have the freedom that we have today. Author Vanessa Riley, her new novel is Sister Mother Warrior. We'll return with more of our conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. If you are just tuning in, my guest today is the author Vanessa Riley. Her new historical novel, Sister Mother Warrior, is set during the Haitian Revolution and based on the true life stories of two extraordinary women. The first empress of Haiti, Marie-Claire Bonheur, and Grand Toya, a West African-born warrior who helped lead the rebellion that freed the enslaved people of Haiti. Here, Riley discusses the significance of twins in her novel. It was everywhere in the research. Mary Claire and Jean-Jacques, they're born in the same year, literally a couple of weeks apart. You have her having twins for Jean-Jacques. Then you, you have the twin gods. In, and in Zinzu and Zinzi. Yes, yes. So in Dahomey culture, twins are revered. Other African cultures, they're not. So it was like all of these choices around twins just kept coming at me. And it, it had, it, to me, it wove into the story. Define prophetic thing happening. I don't know if I'm overthinking it, Vanessa, but I started seeing sort of metaphorical twins. I mean, Egbosu and Toya. 
you mentioned Marie Claire and Jean Jacques. Marie Claire and Toya. Absolutely. And Toya and Noxamir. Yes. 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 I wept at that part in the book. I don't want to spoil it for readers, but there is a gorgeous watershed moment when they come to understand the importance each held in each other's lives. Yes. So twins everywhere. Twins, like I said, it was it was coming from everywhere, from the literal fact of Mary Claire and Jean-Jacques being born in the same year, 1758, to her having twins, her losing twins, and then the twinning of the personalities between the differences in, you know, uh, Toya and Mary Claire, the battles. Yes. So you are absolutely right. And the, the battles between them and the pairings in my head, that was a very, very strong theme because there's a right and a wrong and a left and a right. And the, the twin powers of power and peace, I think, are extremely important in the book. The mango and <laughs> soup each hold pride of place in this book. Mango, you write about it almost as a sacred object. Talk about the mango and the soup in the book, please. In African culture, as well as in Haitian culture, food is very important. It's almost a, a spiritual experience, eating, being thankful for the food that you have. And when I found that the Agdaban and the mango are basically the same fruit, it spun in my head of something that could tie both Africa and the West Indies together. And so that was the, the it's a tying force because often we want to separate the diaspora and the diaspora is actually connected, not just because of the transport, but the stories that are being told as you're sharing food. I can imagine people sitting around talking about what they used to do in Ghana, what it was like in Dahomey and, and all these different places. I could envision those kind of talks. And so when I see Toya with the children, teaching the children the things that she knew and making them feel special about astronomy and the stars, I could see these stories. And so to me, having that mango is that connection between the food and the family and the stories and the cultures, because a lot of things in Africa are brought to Santa Domingue and it's part of the enslaved narrative. The soup is important because you have to think about what can you bring, what can you do to feed people? So you can have the bread is one thing, but to nourish nourishment. And, and Mary Claire actually did a lot of studying um, to figure out the right things to put in the soup to make it wholesome and filling. And the soup actually becomes part of the Haitian cultures as, as part of the celebration for independence. So to weave that into the story for me was extremely important. And it just goes back and it symbolizes the people and the culture and the ties to the past. You depict the relationship between Marie Claire and Jean-Jacques as a love story for the ages, albeit a complicated one. Would you tell us how their friendship begins? 
their friendship begins because Jean-Jacques, as he's growing up on the habitation, it's very close to Le Cap, which is the capital of Saint-Domingue, or once was the capital of Saint-Domingue. At the, at, I think at the point in time, it's just one of the largest uh, cities. It's a port city. And so on the weekends, the enslaved would actually go to the markets in the city. And they'd sell fruits and vegetables, whatnot. And he ends up at a garden, which is part of where she's going to school. And they meet in this garden and it becomes a symbol, the Garden of Eden, the garden almost sometimes of Gethsemane, but it's this the garden aspect where they meet. And to me, there are several myths, and I say myths because I cannot disprove or prove definitively the, the varying stories because there are so many stories and so many myths that have come about Jean-Jacques and Mary Claire, I couldn't tell you definitively. So I kind of, sometimes I just took the one I wanted to go with <laughs> and went with it when I was writing. But to me, there's something very beautiful about them kind of growing up together and first love, new love, but this sustaining love because of the length of time that their relationship nurtures. But they're still victims of the society and being at war and, and not knowing if the other person lives and, and how do you go on if you think the love of your life is gone. There is these turns and twists that are part of the, the, the historical record of them that shape and move and put them in places in order to, to really describe this love affair. But I think it's, I go for the beauty because I think there's something very touching about how long their their relationship lasted. Uh, I think it's something something soft and beautiful that needs to be reflected. Oftentimes, people shy away from the enslavement stories or stories that have enslavement because all they can focus on is the brutality. And one thing I want to show is that even in the worst of times, our people found joy. They found ways to love and their relationship is a testament to that. I, I think it's very important. You can't always focus on the pain. Sometimes you need to focus on the joy. I mean this as a compliment. The book feels very cinematic and I wondered if you've been approached about turning it into a film or adapting it as a series. There, there have been some early, early queries, uh, but that was before the book was finished. So I'll keep you posted. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is enough as it is. It is wonderful enough, but I guess it, it's a tribute to your lyrical writing that the scenes are so vivid and, and the love scenes are especially romantic. Thank you. You know, it's often women don't have the grand adventures. If you go back in history, it's very rare for women to be portrayed in these grand adventures. And these two women lived a grand adventure. And with Mary Claire, there is a, a bona fide love story, you know, from research and historians. One of the most shocking things was, you know, some of the early historians who were alive uh, during the time of Jean-Jacques Deslines talked about how he loved to dance and he was a jokester. And, and, and so... <laughs> These characteristics are some of the things 
that you don't think about when you think about these these hardened war heroes, uh, these these warriors battling against the French and the bloodiness of these battles. And you don't think about these other things. And so the love story gives you a chance to get away from that just for just for a moment and just enjoy being alive and being free in that moment. And so I, I take special care. I want you to be swept away. Well, I was. I know that your training was in engineering. You have a doctorate. You have two masters. <laughs> when did you turn to literature? I was actually one of those kids that had a couple gifts. And so I was on the academic team, but I was also winning governor's awards for writing and doing essays and poetry and et cetera, et cetera. And it was that critical moment. And my mother sat me down and she was like, baby, you always need to be able to pay your bills. At that moment in time, you didn't see women that look like me having full-time careers writing novels. You had to go back a couple of decades and generations before you saw that. And then there wasn't like a, you know, you go back to Zora Neale Hurston, you go back that far, you can see, you know, women writing full-time, et cetera. But then there's a gap. It's like we had our few, our stars, and that's it. So writing novels wasn't something I saw as, as a full-time gig, but it was something I was enjoyed. And, and then, you know, there's only so much you can write about diecast manufacturing with them. <laughs> <laughs> Without somebody saying, you know what, that's a little bit too exciting for molten metal. Could you back it up a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> well, it helped you pay your bills. And now you have this rich life as an author. I love it. Engineering taught me to ask the deep questions of how and why. You know, how does this work? Why would they choose to do something like this? And I bring that to my research. Because you, you, you mentioned being you swept away and felt like you're there. It's because that's the level I go tactically into the research because I want you to feel as if you are there in the background watching all the things happen. And I thank my, my engineering for that. Author Vanessa Riley, her new historical novel is Sister Mother Warrior. Riley has several upcoming local appearances scheduled, including tonight, July 12th, at the Atlanta History Center, tomorrow at the Gwinnett County Public Library, and Thursday at the Decatur Public Library. More information is on our website, wabe.org City Lights. Coming up, Georgia Peaches take on new meaning with the Woodstock Arts Theater's musical adaptation of James and the Giant Peach. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Just as Georgia peaches are at their most delicious, a giant peach is center stage at Woodstock Arts Theater. 
a musical adaptation of James and the Giant Peach, based on the story by Roald Dahl, opens July 13th for a two-week run with a sensory-friendly performance on the 16th. Joining me now via Zoom, Zach Stoltz, Artistic Director of Woodstock Arts, and Sabrina Lloyd, Director of James and the Giant Peach. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. Hello. Thank you. Yeah. For those who haven't read the book or seen the animated movie made in 1966, would you give us a brief synopsis? James and the Giant Peach follows a young orphan boy. He dreams of a new life with a family that loves him. And through his imagination and the help of a, I don't know what you would call him, a mystic, Ladalord, he leaves his orphanage to go live with some mysterious and evil ants. Things happen (laughs) and uh, magic occurs and he finds a giant peach to escape his evil ants with a bunch of life-sized or human-sized insects. They go on a journey where he realizes that the only family he needs is the family that he finds that loves him. They triumph over evil he finds his way home. And that's sort of the whole theme is where is home? Is home a place that you were given? Is it a place that you create? And for him, it's a place that he creates with people that he loves, or in this case, insects that are like people that he loves. We recently spoke with Atlanta Lyric Theater's director and lead actor about their production of Matilda the Musical, another Roald Dahl tale about an abused child. Critics of James and the Giant Peach have attacked this story for racism, profanity, even sexual innuendo. What are your thoughts about the dark side of Roald Dahl's writing? There, there is a complicated legacy that goes with Roald Dahl. As a member of the Jewish community, I take everything that he has done with a grain of salt coming from some of his comments that he made throughout his life and some of the, uh, yeah, the the darkness behind the man too. That being anti-Semitic, near fascist, can we say, and it's some of his beliefs. I I think we absolutely can say. And these adaptations of his work, these musicals, both James and the Giant Peach and Matilda are, are taking the these core levels of really fantastic children's work and they become an adaptation, right? So you move past the hidden darknesses of the racism, the anti-Semitism and the darker tones that don't belong in the story for us. (laughs) While still holding on to, as Sabrina and I talked about a lot when, when she first came aboard to start working on it, it's a, it is a, story about trauma and it never talks down to to young audiences as a musical as a piece it is very inviting and it is very clear about these heavier topics it wants to talk about but it has been scrubbed from some of the uh truly distasteful history of Roald Dahl itself Mm -hmm. 
I like your description of scrubbed, Zach, because, of course, this is not the book you are presenting. This is a Tony Award-winning musical team and writer who adapted the book for the stage. Sabrina, so what is redeeming about doll stories on abused children? Well, I think we have to start by just admitting that Dahl himself was probably a victim of abuse because I don't know how somebody could understand it so intimately from the outside as an artist. Um, I don't think that he probably had adequate help and that his art was probably his help. You know, and that's that's just a supposition just based on the art. I'm making an assumption, but we, you know, most people have suffered from some sort of trauma. So I think we can we can credit him with that. And because of that, I think um, one of the gifts of this play, and it's coming from the source, is that it's it's one of his earlier works. So it's a little more raw, it's a little more unfiltered and uncommented on. He's processing as opposed to having processed stuff. And I think you know, in, in trauma therapy, they, they try to avoid things like forgive your abuser. You know, you don't owe your abuser anything else. You know, you can actually move forward. And I think that's a very sophisticated and modern take on coming through trauma. And it's right at the center of what this story is about. So it's kind of advanced in that way. And, and something it's touching on things that, that people don't touch on very often. There's a really interesting moment where Spoiler alerts, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> right. Where the uh, James's evil aunts, they exit the story and they exit it permanently. James turns to the bugs and says, should, should I be sad about that? And they give him permission to not, to not be, to walk away from his trauma and his abuse and to, to step forward from it. And every time I hear it in rehearsal, just takes my breath away as this, yep. as this, this permission. And if I had it took me far, far too long into my life before anyone gave me that sort of permission. And so I think for the creators of the musical to really put the emphasis on the, that healing nature of found family mm-hmm. and stepping past your trauma is just such a, a lovely, poignant thing. And relative to what's going on right now in our lives as a, as a whole, as yeah. a nation. So let's talk about the musical. How does the music bring the story to life? Kind of one of the big opening numbers and recurring motifs is this riff called Right Before Your Eyes. And it's where Lotta Lord, who is this kind of magical mystery man, is just telling the audience, you know, right before your eyes, all of this is coming alive and happening and it's, it's got this really kind of fun sense of wonder and showmanship and, and it's exciting and it's attention grabbing. Come with me to see something strange unfold. Hear the weirdest tale that was ever told. From this rare depiction Some will swear it's fiction Yet each peculiar twist that I tell is true And you shall see it in plain view 
right before your eyes. Marvel has magic. He's on Musically, the show kind of covers a really fun spectrum. The Earthworm has like a kind of a salsa tango number. I got a sweet little treat that's just for you. Sweet to tease and make you squirm. Slightly season, nice and firm. Come and squeeze a luscious little one. And there are, are moments that sound like classic, you know, 1950s and 60s TV ads for toothpaste with like <laughs> these kind of quartet esque harmonies. And the villains for being the horrible horrible people that they are get these really fun villain songs that remind us of the Disney movies of the 90s where mm. it's it's almost a kind of camp in and of itself. <laughs> oh, wow. Have you even begun to wonder why a ladybug sports a spot? There's a lot you can tell from a ruby red shell if you look real close and connect the dots. Have you even begun to wonder how a grasshopper twangs a tune I put my thought on my weeds You hear symphony strings Playing love songs to the moon Follow us and listen There's so much you're missing Such a lot you thought you got Until now Well, don't you wonder How a giant peach can grow to the sky A six-foot They're complicated. They're very complicated. Really tight harmonies and a lot of really high notes, a lot of tenors and sopranos. How large is your cast? Is it 14? Is that what we ended up with? <laughs> I believe so. Yeah, it's 14. Yeah. And this is a fun one because it's a mixture. We have some of our youth student actors, teens mixed in with adult professional actors. And so everybody is kind of working and learning together. One of my favorite ways for us to do theater where, you know, adults who are maybe a little more tired can learn from <laughs> can, can can grab that excitement of something that may feel kind of rote at a certain point from the fresh eyes of doing it with young actors and young actors learning professionalism and all kinds of new techniques whether they know it or not from working with adults it's a really fun grab bag of a cast oh what fun what can you tell us about the sensory friendly performance of james and the giant peach so we at Woodstock Arts really value, our mission statement is engaging our community with relevant art experiences every day, right? And so that means our full community and we, it's, it's so important to us that our doors are open to everyone. And that includes audiences with their unique and varying sensory issues or, or folks with spectrum disorders. And so we, we wanna offer these genuine theatrical experiences to them. And so with the shows that we do our sensory friendly performances, I go in and my theater education manager and I, we watch the show and we take notes on kind of moments that are big or might create some kind of extra sensory overload or moment. And then we work with the director and the creative team and the cast and we just bring everything down a little bit. And so during the show, Maybe if there's a moment of flashing lights, we skip those and just kind of 
tinkering and tailoring the show to make it accessible. And we, we move around our space as well. So we take out rows of chairs and we create a, uh, we call it a comfort zone, an area, a calm zone with couches and pillows and space for people to move around if they need to, or if something is overloading to, to take a step back. We provide noise canceling headphones, sensory toys, things like fidget spinners and stress squishy things to kind of just help. Yeah. So it's uh, creating a space for everyone and that's adapting our space to it. That's adapting bits of the show to it. When we do a Christmas carol, because we do it for a Christmas carol, we'll have like Jacob Marley in his ghost makeup. He'll come out before the show and we'll introduce him and we'll say, this is Jacob Marley. He is a ghost. He will do this and have him meet the, the audience so that the first time they see him, it's not a total surprise and it's not in the height of the moment of... Um, you know, Scrooge, uh, seeing so Jacob you, Marley. You work to reduce anxiety or fear, discomfort that some theatergoers might have. I applaud the thought and effort that goes into it. Aww. Thank you. We appreciate that. <laughs> How are puppets used in this show? Oh my goodness. This show is very big. There are uh, lists and lists and lists of characters that pop in and out for one second and then um, we never see them again. And many of those are now puppets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we have a lot of rod puppets that are just, you know, stick puppets. We have some hand puppets. We have light puppets. We have shadow puppets. We have some spiders that are um, glove puppets. So we have a pretty broad range of um of ways that we're using our puppets. And they all relate back to sort of James as an imaginative, you know, perhaps future writer, a reader right now. So most of the puppets, we try to make them organically look like they come out of a storybook imagination. Yeah, I would think the potential for fantastical set design and outlandish costumes that that's great with this show for sure they're having a lot of fun our peach is uh slowly becoming this massive centerpiece and i think they'll be painting it in a, a few days so i'm very excited to see the final result it's looking quite exciting well it sounds it one of my favorite things about what sabrina and jody underwood and Kira Pierce, our choreographer and music director, what they're doing with this show is really embracing the full scope of theatricality. And to me, that's the best kind of theater, right? Like theater that can really only be theater and really say like, hey, come with us with your imagination. Yeah, it's it's a cow on a stick, but it's a cow. And, and the audience goes, <laughs> yeah, it is. That is a cow and move or sharks. Um, and, 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 or sharks yeah so it's a really exciting thing and approach to the material zach stoltz artistic director of woodstock arts and sabrina lloyd the director of james and the giant peach the musical opens tomorrow at the woodstock arts theater and runs through july 27th more information about the show and the sensory-friendly performance 
is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Finally, today, in 1999, the famed artist Saul LeWitt created the public art installation 54 Columns in Atlanta's historic Old Fourth Ward. What could be overlooked as an unfinished structure or a demolished building was designed to imitate the Atlanta skyline. Recently, the Fulton County Board of Commissioners approved a $100,000 revitalization grant for the sculpture. The county's adding multiple structures to the installation, stadium steps, a pathway into the park, more signage, and better landscaping. The seating will also allow local companies to have a designated performance place among the columns, which will be lit from below. The restoration does not yet have a set date. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., comedian Neil Brennan stops by. The Chappelle Show co-creator will perform his new stand-up show, Unacceptable, at Variety Playhouse on Saturday, July 16th. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.